0: Welcome to Wisdom and the Word podcast, the show that not only answers your questions from God's Word, but equips believers with the foundational truths for their faith. We're excited that you've taken time to join us and hope that today's content is valuable to you. In today's episode, Pastor Wiley answers a listener's question from the Bible. Welcome to Wisdom in the Word. This is Thoughtful Thursday for Wisdom in the Word. We're thankful that you're joining us on this Thursday, where we will be answering your questions from the Word of God. Uh, Many of our listeners write in questions uh, and deliver them to us. If you have questions, we want to encourage you to uh, send them to us via email. We'd be glad to add them to our list and continue uh, on in answering questions from the Word of God. Uh, Let's begin here today with our first question, and that is this. James chapter number two has many verses about faith and works. Verse twenty four is an example. Let me read to you, James two twenty four. The Bible says, "Ye see then how that by by works a man is justified, and not by faith only." And so the question is this: uh, in regards to the faith and works, what killed Goliath? Faith or works? What killed Goliath? Faith or works? Well. I think this is a uh, I think this is a great question. Um, I, I kind of I read it and I was a little taken aback, and I was like, "Well, you know, why would someone ask this particular question in this way?" But I think, you know, when you start thinking about it, of course, we know that David had great faith, but we also know that it was God used the work of His hands in order to be able to accomplish it. So, was it done by faith or was it done by works? Well, I, I think in order to be able to understand a little bit about this. Particular answer. I think the first thing we need to do is understand that um, the nature or the relationship between faith and works in the Bible. This is, I think, of the utmost importance. Uh, when James talks about faith and works, he makes it very clear that our faith needs works, needs works to accompany it in order for it to be genuine. That is, if our faith does not produce some sort of fruit. If our faith does not produce some sort of works, then it's not genuine faith. That is, faith that is workless is really just a said faith and not real genuine faith. Jesus would say things to us and help us understand. He would say that faith without, he would tell us that that when, when he was here, that it was by their fruit we would know them. That is, we would be able to discern whether someone is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ by discerning whether or not they, they do the works that the scripture uh, says that they should do by, by their obedience. In fact, the story of the wise man and the foolish man. The story of the wise man and the foolish man is not just about uh, just a saved versus unsaved person. It's really about an obedient versus a disobedient person. One who chooses to listen and build his house upon the rock versus one that chooses to disobey and build his house upon the sand. Obedience works always plays a huge role, a huge evidentiary role in our salvation. So the teaching of James is that works are the evidence of genuine faith. Our works are the evidence of genuine faith. Look with me in James chapter number two. And look with me at what he says here in this particular text in verse 17. He says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. That is, faith that does not have works accompanying it is not real living faith. Real living genuine faith is faith that produces and has evidence of works. Now, let me be very clear. The Bible is clear about the fact that we are not saved by our good works. That is, good works do not save us. No amount of good works could save us. If we could be saved by good works, then Jesus would not have had to die. Jesus died at Calvary because our good works were not good enough to be able to save us. However, When you look at the relationship between faith and works in the Bible, they do have a very close relationship. And that is, while works do not save us, works are the evidence that we have been saved. Works are the evidence of the fact that faith is real and genuine and that it exists in this particular text, James two, which is one of the most famous. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why the book of James was almost not included in the uh, in the list of, of canon and almost rejected by some people, is because they thought it taught an aberrant doctrine concerning the matter of faith and works. But if you understand what James is getting at in James chapter 2, he's not teaching us that we are justified by works. What he's saying is, is that our works really evidence the fact that we have been genuinely justified. That the only way that we can really genuinely prove the fact that we have faith is if it changes us to the point where we're doing some work that shows and gives proof of the fact that Christ is ours, that we belong to him. So the teaching of James is that works are the evidence of genuine faith. The effects of possessing a genuine faith in Jesus is that there will be works that accompany it. A genuine faith in Jesus will always have works that accompany it. Um, In fact, you know, not only would Jesus teach this when he said, by your fruits, shall shall you know them, uh, Paul would reiterate or teach this exact same thing in Ephesians chapter number two. In this particular text, verses eight to ten, we find out that we are not saved and cannot be saved by our good works. He says in Ephesians two, eight and nine, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Verse nine, not of works, lest any man should boast. God didn't want you to take credit or me to take credit in our salvation. None of our good works were good enough to be able to save us or get us to heaven. And so Christ had to come. And so it is by our faith in the completed work of Calvary, our faith in the person of Jesus Christ, by which we are redeemed and we are saved. Now, having said that, verse number 10 tells us, for we are his workmanship, that we are we are God's tapestry upon which he is painting. The Bible says we are his workmanship. He created us, made us new creatures. He says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That is, there is always a relationship in the Bible between faith and works not that our works justify us, not that our works uh, make us saved. It's not by our works. The Bible says not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of water, by the word, by the renewing of regeneration. I mean, the scriptures are clear about the fact that we have been saved and regenerated, washed in the blood of Christ by faith. However, A faith that does not have works to accompany it is not a genuine faith. It's not a genuine faith. It's not real. And so the Bible teaches this relationship. So in verse number 10 of Ephesians 2, Paul would say, we are his workmanship created what? Unto good works. We are not saved by good works. We are saved unto them. That is to be able to do them. The Bible says, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It is God's will that we walk in the fruit of our salvation, that we manifest fruit of our repentance, evidence that we have been saved. So to answer the question, to kind of get around, now that we understand a little bit what the Bible's teaching between faith and works, to answer the question, it was the faith that David had in God that moved him to grab five smooth stones and face the giant. It was the faith that moved him. It was also faith that gave him the courage and God that guided the stone. How could he go down and face a 10 foot giant in the valley with just a slingshot and some stones if he did not have the confidence that God would be with him and he, and God would protect him and God would take care of him and God would give him the victory. So it was faith. It was faith that, that, had him say what he said to Saul and to those that were standing around in fear. It was faith that that David had in God that moved him to grab the smooth stones. It was faith that that moved him to gave him the courage to go down into the valley, and it was God that guided the stone. But it was works that displayed evidence that David genuinely believed that God would deliver the giant into his hands. That is. He could have said, I believe God can take care of this giant. He could have said, I believe God is going to deliver us from this giant. And others could have challenged him and said, well, put your money where your mouth is, big boy. I mean, why don't you just go on down into that valley and take care of that giant yourself? Now, of course, David could have said that, but had he not believed it, he would not have grabbed the stones and the slingshot and gone out into the valley to face him. But no, David's faith was... Evidenced in his works, that is, that he had real, genuine faith. It was the work of faith that killed killed Goliath. So, to answer the question, that is my answer. You say, was it was it faith or works? It was the work produced by faith that killed Goliath. It was the thing that came out of his faith, which proves that our faith is real and genuine. If you say it's going to rain and you don't carry an umbrella, you probably don't believe. Listen, if you say something and you don't live it out, it's evidence of the fact that you might not genuinely believe it. The Bible says that we genuinely believe what the Bible says by proving and living out the truth of it. So that's our works. Now, you know, one last thought on this before we move on to our next question this is the way Hebrews 11 is constructed. Now we call Hebrews 11, the great hall of fame or the great hall of faith or the faith hall of fame or whatever you want to call it, because there's a whole bunch of people listed in here who did great things by faith. In fact, the Bible says through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Okay. That is we believe, we believe through faith that God made all things. But listen to what the Bible says in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. So he did something. He offered a sacrifice. But how did he do it? By faith. Uh, the Bible says in uh, verse number 5, By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, see death and was not found because God had translated him. Uh, look at verse number 7. By faith, Noah... Being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. That is, it was his faith in what God had said that moved him to do. He built the ark by faith. It was works, works. It was the works of his faith, but the works of his faith were evidence that he genuinely believed it. That's why he built an ark on dry ground. In fact, as you go through the list in Hebrews, what you find is Hebrews 11 gives us a list of people who had great faith, but we've got to notice that their faith produced great works. This is the Bible's teaching on this subject. Works do not save us, but they do provide evidence of our faith. And if our faith is real and genuine, it will produce some sort of fruit, some sort of work in our lives, evidence of the fact that we have come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. All right, great question. Let's move on to our second question today, and that is this. In Genesis chapter 3, God speaks with Adam and Eve. An example is the question that God asks. He says, Adam, where art thou? Or basically, where are you? He also speaks to Satan in the book of Job, uh, where he asks him about where he's been, going to and fro. So here's the here's the question. Since God is omniscient, why does he ask questions since he already knows the answers. Why does God ask questions? I mean, is he looking for probing for something? Is he looking for us to provide us something that he doesn't know? But if we believe that God knows all things that there are to be known, then why would God ask the question in the first place? Well, this is a great question. Now, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Um, we also see in the scriptures that where God asks questions. Okay. For example, in the garden, God asks Adam where he is, what he's done. Okay, Let's look at those questions in Genesis 3, uh, verses 9 and 11. Genesis 3, verses 9 and 11. Uh, we find uh, this particular dialogue recorded for us. Genesis 3, 9, the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Verse 11, he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou taken of the tree, whereof I command thee that thou shouldest not eat? And so, you know, he asked him questions. Now, it seems that in heaven, in the book of Job, if we flip over there for just a moment, uh, into the book of of Job, um, we find that in Job chapter 1 in verse number 7, he asks Satan where he has been. Job 1 in verse number 7, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Now, the question really is, now in the wilderness, we've, we have multiple times where God asks questions. In the wilderness, God asks Moses what he's holding in his hand. Exodus chapter 4 and verse number 2. And he basically just says, it's a rod. It's a rod. In the crowd on the way to Jairus' house, Jesus asked the question, Mark five thirty, well, who touched me? If virtue has left his body. Who touched me? Now, being omniscient, God already knew the answer to these questions. He knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows the secret things. Psalm 44:21. 21. So why does he ask? Why does he ask? Great question. Well, let me say this. The questions that God asks always serve a purpose. He's not just asking questions for information's sake. We know and believe that God, when he asks questions, he has a reason for it. He does not ask to obtain information he already possesses all the information. He does not need you to give him the specifics. He's not missing something. His questions serve a different purpose, and that purpose varies based on the context of the question and the needs of the one to whom the question is directed. That is, if God asks Adam a question, it's it really revolves around the context of what has happened. Why is he asking Adam where he's been? Why is he asking Adam why he's covered his his nakedness? Why is he asking that? He's not asking for his own information. He's asking to make Adam aware and to make Adam respond and to make Adam responsible and culpable for his own sin. That is, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God told them not to eat and hid themselves from God, God called out and says, where art thou? Now, God knew where Adam's physical location was, and that wasn't the point of the question at all. It wasn't that he didn't know where he was located. He knew he was in the garden. He knew exactly where he was all along. The question was designed to draw Adam out of hiding, that God could have approached his sinful creation in anger. He could could have been very violent and wrathful. He could have used harsh words, condemnation, instant judgment, could have taken him out, since I'm starting all over again, but he didn't do any of that. No. Instead, God approaches Adam with a question, and the question opens the door for further conversation. Is judgment coming? Yes. Is condemnation coming? Yes, it's coming. But it's in this way that God even shows his mercy. He shows his, his grace, his gentleness, uh, the desire to reconcile with this man, even though he's violated his command. And God is asking the question so that Adam will come to his own, his own conclusion, so that Adam will recognize. He doesn't ask questions so that he will give the answers. He asks us questions so that we will search ourselves for the answers. He already knows the answer to the question. He knows us better than we know ourselves, but he wants us to search ourselves for the answers, to be honest before him. Um, A teacher will do this, you know, in a classroom. Uh, You find this, if he, um, you know, a, a teacher might say, you know, what's the capital of Ohio? Now, the teacher knows what the capital of Ohio is. At least we hope that the teacher knows what the capital of Ohio is. But he's asking the question of the student in order to prompt them to search themselves in order to be able to find the answer. If a math teacher asks a, a, a student, "What is 5 plus 12? 5 7?" And if the you the know, student says, well, it's 13 or 14 or 11, well, they've missed the mark because there is an absolute answer to the question. He wants them to work it out. He wants them to figure it out. And so this is a good teaching thing that you see um, in the Bible. When God asks Adam, where art thou? The question's purpose was, or at least in part of it, was to focus Adam on the problem that he and his wife had, on the fact that they needed to search their own hearts, knowing that they had, knowing that they had done something that God was not, God was not pleased with when when teaching uh people this is a common thing we do we ask our children these questions knowing the answers i mean you know i remember when when my kids were little my daughter got into uh, her mother's lipstick and the lipstick was all over her face literally it was all over her face she didn't she didn't put it on she looked like she put it on with someone else's elbow And it was, you know, up on her cheeks and, and it was down on her chin and it wasn't anywhere where it was supposed to be. Well, she knew she wasn't supposed to be in her mother's makeup. And so when we asked the question, we didn't ask the question because we didn't know the answer. We already knew the answer. We asked her if she had been in her mom's makeup. Now, again, that was to make her accountable. That was to bring her to the place of understanding her own responsibility. And that's why God does what he does. When God does this, we see about this like other questions of God in Scripture may have other purposes. God questions Job relentlessly about everything from Job's absence when the foundations of the earth were set. That is, he basically says, where were you when I put everything together, when I made everything? Well, he knew where Job was. Job wasn't created yet. Now, all of these questions are instructional tools to emphasize God's power, God's sovereignty, his ability. Uh, When you look at the the book of Jonah, in Jonah chapter four and verse number four and verse number nine, God repeats a, a question to Jonah and The question, I mean, as you're looking at it, the question uh, is designed to stir self-examination. In Jonah 4, verse number 4, then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? And then in verse, again, in verse number 9, he says, and God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well. Now, he asked him twice the same question. What's God doing here? Well, he's pointing out some things. God questioned to Elijah. Is you know, verse 1 Kings 19, well, why are you here? What's, what's your purpose in coming here? Pointed out Elijah was straying from God's purpose for him. God's question in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Had the effect of prompting him to volunteer. During Jesus' ministry here on earth, he, uh, earth, he often used questions. A good teacher will use strategic questions to facilitate the learning process and Jesus was the the best teacher the the master teacher. At times Jesus asked questions in order to set up an opportunity for learning. Whom do whom do people say that I am? Whom do ye say that I am? Um when he asked questions, uh, what is written in the law? Um you know, when we see the the Ethiopian eunuch the unit comes up. He says, understandest thou what thou readest? You know, these are questions. Um, when Jesus asked the question, what does this mean? Or he's asking, how do you interpret this? That is the way we should understand this is God is a father and he uses language to teach within the context of relationship. He's talking to us. He's conversing with us and he's giving us opportunity to be able to answer. He, he's, he's a teacher. He's the great And we're sitting in his classroom. We are sitting at his feet. And when he asks us questions, he doesn't ask us because he doesn't know the answer. He asks us because he already knows the answer. And most of the time, we already know the answer. We just need to reconcile ourselves to what the right answer is, to come to the right answer, or maybe change our answer, or maybe look at our answer and say it's not sufficient. It's not because he doesn't know the answer, but he wants us to know the answer. And not only does he want us to know the answer, He wants to know us and he wants us to know ourselves and see ourselves sometimes in the way that he sees us. So when we think about the way that God asks questions is a great question, but it's so important for us to remember uh, when God asks questions, he's asking them for this purpose so that you and I might know the answers as well as he does. Sometimes we need to be reminded of what the right answer should be. Next week we're going to continue on in our questions. Uh, we've got one on Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter number five that we're going to get into. Uh, we're going to look at David uh, when he numbered the people and took a census. Um, what does that mean? We've got future questions on what a covenant of salt is. We've got a whole bunch here. Uh, we're looking. Keep sending those questions. We love taking time on Thursday to be able to answer those. I hope that today's answers have been a help to you. We hope you'll send more to us. Email email them to us if you have the opportunity. We also want to encourage you to join us on Tuesday with our Bible study in the book of Hebrews. This coming Tuesday, we'll be looking at and beginning into Hebrews chapter number four, talking about God's rest. So thankful that you've joined us today. May God bless you. I hope the remainder of your day is blessed and we look forward to seeing you again soon on the next episode of Wisdom in the Word. Have a great day. God bless. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Wisdom in the Word podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we invite you to support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast app and sharing something you've learned on social media. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you next time on Wisdom in the Word.